0: So as we pick up on the sort of narrative now, I want us to do a little bit of recap of where we've been in Matthew up to this point. So we open with a genealogy, and what do we remember about the genealogy of Matthew? No. (laughs) Matthew wrote a very odd genealogy. Uh, if he was trying to prove Jesus' pure bloodline, uh, he went out of his way to include every Gentile in the, in the genealogy. Every outsider, he included some of the worst moments in Israel's history, uh, David's affair, things like that, Babylon. He went out of his way to, to sort of make this genealogy a bit more peculiar than you would expect if you were trying to prove uh, the purity of this Jewish Messiah. And then we went into birth stories where uh, Jesus... Um, gets connected in multiple ways to the story that is Israel. And some of the first people to come to see Jesus are, are who? Coming from far away. Yeah, and the Magi, these, these pagan astrologers likely from Babylon that have come and are worshiping while the scribes and, and the leaders in, in Israel are not. They're they're the ones who are not connected to the story. They're the ones actually seeking to kill um, Jesus. And so we have a person in power who is seeking to basically kill all the babies at a time, which should sound a whole lot like what? What was that? Yeah, genocide, but it should make us think of another Old Testament leader, right? Yeah, it's, it should harken back to Pharaoh. And we even see Jesus go down to Israel, Egypt and then come back up from Egypt to keep that driving home that point that Jesus is the story of Israel. That is what Matthew wants us to see, all these connection points. And then we encounter John the Baptist, who's a whole lot like uh, some Old Testament prophet, right? Who? Who do people keep thinking John the Baptist might be? Elijah. That there's this fiery Old Testament uh, preacher in the old, um, who just seems to think everything in Israel is going to hell in a handbasket, right? Everybody's corrupt. Everybody's awful. Um, everything's going to be torn down. Only those of us who are really living the pure life will actually do this. And, and that's kind of the message that he came to bring. And uh, Jesus comes to him and is baptized uh, in a moment that speaks of um, the Holy Spirit hovering over waters, God speaking in that moment, and and there's all this language in there to to connect us to uh, kind of the major water stories actually in scripture. So uh, whether it's Genesis, whether it's the, or Genesis 1, whether it's the flood, whether it's... um, uh, the Red Sea or whether it's uh, the crossing the Jordan, there's, there's multiple language cues that are making us think that this is a, a new creation story or a new uh, exodus of God's people, this repeated language. And then Jesus goes to the wilderness and is tempted. And what does Jesus constantly quote back to Satan in those stories? Yeah, yeah, not just the word of God, but he quotes like the lessons that they learned when they were in the desert. So he quotes out of Deuteronomy multiple times, this the very text that they, when they left their time, their 40 years in the desert, they go, here are the things we learned. We learned man does not live on bread alone. We, so so they, he comes back and once again, he's reliving in some ways the Israel story uh, as the story is being told here. Jesus starts making disciples. He picks kind of the unexpected. These are not the, the world class academics who have done their way through Torah school, but they're fishermen and they're um, people that just are super common blue collar kind of boys for the most part. And as Jesus keeps doing his ministry, all sorts of people, we find people from uh, Judea in the south, we find people up in Syria, we find people from the Decapolis, which is a largely Gentile or pagan part of town, we find all of these different people who are following Jesus, and they're all desiring to be healed and drive out demons, and, and so... You would imagine that this is actually quite a ragtag collection of people that have started following Jesus, people with diseases, people that have been marginalized for all sorts of different reasons. The crowds start growing, and that is at the moment that Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount. It is not to a bunch of Pharisees. It's not going to the Temple Mount and giving this elaborate thing. It's it's a pretty ragtag collection of individuals, and Jesus has his crowd and starts speaking to them with his disciples. and we. We've covered the Sermon on the Mount multiple times. I'm not going to retrace all those pictures, but he comes to the mountain to preach. And so actually this summer, we got a chance to go to Aremos Tapos, which uh, is where the Church of the Beatitude is, which is uh, likely the place. Um, mountain is a bit of a strong term, um, but uh, this kind of upper hillside that most people think that this is around where Jesus got to preach. And so we got to go there with my family um, and see this sort of place. And the Sea of Galilee is just directly behind, down the hill, beautiful. And if you think the Sea of Galilee is large, it's really not. Um, It's not the most large lake in the world. Um, So sea is probably a really strong term for it. Um, It is a big lake. And so um, you could probably walk around it maybe in a day or two. Um, So it's not too large. And so it's a beautiful place. And so Jesus likely delivered his message somewhere on one of these kind of hillsides um, in the church, the beautiful church that is there now, just to give you a little bit of visual context and cues. now he's coming down. He's coming down the mountain. And Matthew is telling the story. The other gospel writers will tell it as if these these events probably have a bigger gap. But Matthew definitely wants us to hear these events happening right after the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's not like there's a scene and then we continue a few days later. It is meant to be heard as immediately these are the things that happen. Now if He started his sermon by saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are are those who are persecuted, blessed are those who are grieving. Jesus now will, I would argue, start teaching. All right, what what does this now look like in action? He's fulfilling all that God has said in the Torah and everything else by his teaching, but now will also, I would argue, start living it out in his actions. Because what does it start with? When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you will make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offered the gift that Moses commanded for a proof from them. Now it's important to know, uh, when we hear the word leper, we tend to think of Hansen's disease. Uh, That's often where we go in our Western context. It's what Mother Teresa was working with in India and stuff like that. eats away at your flesh, it's a really terrible, terrible disease. In scripture, that's not necessarily exactly true. Uh, the word leper is really a wide range of any sort of skin conditions. You can have eczema and you would be considered a leper. You can have um, really, really ashy skin and you would be considered a leper. There's a lot of things that would be under the umbrella of what would be considered leprosy in, um, in ancient language. And so uh, there's, there's just about anything uh, related to skin diseases. Now, the Old Testament gives a whole lot of instructions to this. There's a lot of instructions basically on when you touch a leper, here are the things you need to do to cleanse yourself. Now, if it speaks that way, what does it then assume that we are going to touch a leper, right? Like, here's what happens when you touch a leper, here are the things you've got to do to clean yourself up like there's a certain bathing process there's a certain amount of isolation you're going to need to there's certainly um, certain just certain practices now I want to be clear too when we talk about cleanliness in Old Testament law let me be very very clear cleanliness and moral sins are two different categories okay sometimes we lump them together now moral sins can cause uncleanness but uncleanness is this wide range of categories that include a whole lot of things that are certainly not immoral things. Do you think it's a sin that a woman has a period once a month? No, certainly not, it's not a sin. I hope not, <laughs> or eczema, is eczema a sin? No, it's certainly not a sin, it's smooshing a bug, a sin, it's, well most of the time no, um, it's not a sin. And we have to be cautious, not to, even having a baby. Certainly having a baby is not a sin, it's a celebration of life. But in a very ancient understanding of, of body fluids and blood and all these sort of things, there, there's this idea of clean and unclean. It's, it's almost like, um, uh, I've heard it explained this way. Uh, I'll do it as quick as I can. Um, it's so, so take God, God wants to dwell with his people. And he has all sorts of instructions on sort of the the, the way things have to be prepared for that, and using symbols of life and death and stuff like that. Now, how many of us have been to a hospital, right? Just about everybody's been to a hospital. How many of us have been in, inside the operating room of a hospital? It's probably less of us. Um, now, the operating room is distinct, and, and it's distinct for certain reasons, right? Like, not everybody could just go into an operating room, right? You either have to be the, the sick one or the, the, the one who needs help, or you have to be a set-apart collection of individuals who have gone through a certain amount of training, who, have, um, who now have to go through a certain process to be clean, to make sure everything is prepared, and it's a set-apart place for a certain action of, of healing, of, of bringing back life, of bringing life to a situation. And in some ways, I think there's, a, there's an interesting parallel of God going, look, I'm going to dwell with you, but... I'm, 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 I'm almost, I don't want to diminish, but I'm almost a bit of a neat freak. And here's what I need. I, I need a separate place. I need a cleansing place. I want to bring life. I want to dwell with my people. But uh, there's going to be certain people who are going to be set apart and they're going to have to go through certain washing rituals and stuff like that because it's the language you guys understand about washing and about blood. And, and there's going to be this sort of operating room to help bring life to the people. But only certain people have access to it. Only certain people are clean for that. And so it's just a different way to frame it. It's the same thing like we talk about holiness, but holiness isn't always a moral category. Like there's holy pots used in the temple and there's holy and unholy pots. Not because they're morally better than the others, but it's an understanding of category of clean and unclean. So now if you're in a culture where this clean and unclean thing matters and scriptures certainly speak to different practices that happen, now if it's, it's, wild inconvenience at times to touch a leopard right it's the same thing we experienced in 2020 when it was like hey have you been near anybody that's had covid if so we need you to go be set apart for a week like it's an inconvenience it's frustrating and now you got to go be in quarantine for a week and stuff like that So if you live in a culture where that is wildly inconvenient, you can't go worship, uh, if you go do that, you can't go to the synagogues, you can't do certain things, you gotta be isolated from your family if you just touch a leper. What do you think they ended up doing when they talked about what sort of laws should be in place related to lepers? Which direction do you think they went? Yeah. They made up every law they could to be like, all right, we, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen because this is frustrating, this is inconvenient. Let's, let's just create leper colonies. Let's just separate them out and let them all hang out together. Let's make sure that they don't come uh, and inconvenience us related to lepers. So this is what happens. Yet, the Old Testament law is simply, hey, when you touch a leper, here's the cleansing process to do it. It assumes association. And I think Jesus is coming in And starting to work the things that he has already taught. Where he said, look, this is the rule of law, certainly. If you touch a leper, here's the practice. But that's not the heart of the law. The heart of the law actually assumes that you have an interaction with a leper. That there would be interaction. And then the leper comes along, and what does he say here? Lord, if you will, you will make me clean. Now, there's something profound here. Does he say, if you are able to? No. No, that's not the language. And so he actually seems to assume Jesus' ability. And maybe he saw in Matthew 4, Jesus had already started doing some healings. Maybe he has seen it. Maybe he out of the Sermon on the Mount, just really believes that he's able to. Understanding things like healing and stuff like that in the first century is not, it was much more, I don't know if it's actually common, but it was much more uh, believed in uh, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but perhaps he's here and he's certain Jesus can heal him but what he's uncertain about of whether Jesus would do anything. It's as if the character of Jesus was actually the question here. Jesus, I know you're powerful, but but are you are you good? Do you care about me? Are you willing to actually heal someone like myself? And then Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches him. Which every Jew listening to the story would be like, "What? What just happened?" And it gets into a wonderful conversation and we'll continue in Matthew and I will submit that I, I don't think Jesus actually breaks Torah law at all. Um, I think he fulfills the law, uh, but we'll deal with that, particularly when we get into um, Sabbath and things like that. But we also see him uphold the law very clearly here, because he tells the guy, hey, once you've been cleansed, go to the temple, go offer the sacrifice to Moses, which is prescribed in Leviticus, all the things that you have to do to be declared clean again. And he, he reinforces it, like he... It supports the the, the Torah practices there, at least. But he touches them. And that's important to note, because we will see, as we already read in in the opening, we're going to see a very next story where Jesus doesn't have to touch anybody. Like, we know that Jesus has power to to heal without doing that. But Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And, And this is certainly a story of physical healing, but did the man ask for healing? Is that what he actually asked for? No. He asked for being made clean. Now, once again, in a culture that is steeped in these categories of clean and unclean, if you were declared unclean, like, everything in your life would be taken away from you. Your community, your family, your your ability to go and worship with others, all of it. you, You would be cast aside for so many reasons. And what he asks for is not simply healing, he asks for clean. Because what he's asking for is actually a full restoration of him as a person. And that's the beauty of the story. That, a, that Jesus comes in and is able to take someone from the full category of uncleanness and all that that means. Not just the healing, but the uncleanness, the separation, all of that. And, and is able to make that person clean, able to restore that person The ability to take things that God has even said. This is the thing that pollutes. This is the thing that separates us. uh, It separates God's holiness from the the humanity of the world. And Jesus coming in, his very presence, is to take things that are even categorically unclean and make them clean. It's a tremendous amount of story taking place that we sometimes miss because we're just not steeped in this worldview. And it's so doing what's this man's life now? Restored to the community, restored to worship, restored to family, restored to all the things that kept him isolated. He's brought back into the community. He is fully restored. And this is what Jesus does. He's good news to the unclean. And the beauty is he doesn't just keep us at a distance. Our uncleanness doesn't keep him away from us. It causes us to constantly actually enter in. He draws near and he touches. He touches this man takes us from sinner to saint instantaneously. We're brought brand new by his touch and his word. And he's not only able to, which is probably a piece sometimes we struggle, but he's willing to. Because this is what he came to do. It's essential to the heart of his message to step into places of death and separation and isolation and uncleanness and transform it. So when we blow it, when we sin when this week has just been the worst and we're not quite in the same categories of ceremonial unclean but we still live with the moral uncleanness what do we tend to do shame isolation we feel maybe the isaiah moment um, when isaiah has this moment with god and his only response is i'm a man of unclean lips like i don't even know what to do Sometimes it causes us to avoid prayer, to avoid community, avoid scriptures, avoid the bread and the cup. Separate out. And what you need to understand is that Jesus passionately disagrees with you on that point. And we say things like a holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But the whole story of scripture is a holy God moving towards sin and dealing with it on our behalf. It's like a half truth to sometimes say that, it's not the whole story. All that, Jesus, all that God does is move into the places of sin and restore them. When Isaiah is standing there going, I'm a man of unclean lips, God's not disagreeing with him, but God goes, here, let me clean you. He doesn't go, you're a sinner, I need to wipe you out in my presence. He moves towards the sin and restores. And Jesus does this over and over again. And God takes what is unclean and simple about us and makes us clean and restored. And Jesus is God's holiness on mission to bring holiness and restoration for all those who are going to follow him. That is the story. So when you've blown it big time, when you come in here and it's just a mess of a week, Jesus is not just able to bring his holiness to you. He wants to and is willing and he's good news of that for sinners like you and me. Let's move on to the centurion's servant. So when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him and appealing to him, he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now Capernaum, uh, just so you know, uh, is only maybe a 20-minute walk away from the hillside. So this is actually the picture from the hillside and there's Capernaum, the little town, village of Capernaum sticking out off, off that little edge right there. It's a... Ruins are still there, it's a beautiful little town. Um, It's where uh, Peter's house is, supposedly, and there's a church built on top of it, of course. Uh, There's a church built for everything in Israel. Um, But uh, this is likely the same day, this is not a long journey down the hill. So, and then we encounter a centurion. It's important to know. Uh, So, centurions were Roman soldiers, they were the people that would be in command of about 100 men. Uh, They were like the picture, the epitome of uh, discipline, the picture, an epitome of actually a Roman soldier would be even the centurion uh, above uh, the regular um, foot crew. So how Jewish is a Roman centurion? No, not at all. Certainly pagan in some ways. Now he could be a kind one, he could be a mean one. We don't know, we're not given the full context of how good this one is, at least from Matthew. Let's remember, once again, the Roman context. Rome's an empire at this time. Slogans like piety, virtue, victory, peace, which sound wonderful. I mean, they're slogans that we would use in our own context. But what they mean is piety value. Here are the ways we think the world should work. And if you don't follow those, we need to have victory over you so that we can bring you peace now, right? It is... It is uh, our values by coercion is how we bring peace to the world, right? That is Rome 101 to a T. And so uh, quite a massive empire at this time. And at this time as well, Israel was uh, experiencing a a pretty vast amount of poverty, partly because of the tax system, partly because of the various kings that have been over them lately. Um, And every major town had a Roman occupation. There were always soldiers around. They always were there. Rome used plenty of intimidation tactics. Uh, Actually, right around when Jesus was born, uh, Rome had crucified 2,000 Jews uh, all around the same time, uh, lined the roads and stuff like that as intimidation, saying, hey, if you rebel against Rome, here's what happens to you. And and so Rome was was pretty brutal. Uh, They loved to say, peace. We're bringing the peace of Rome. But they brought it with a boot on your neck. And and that's sort of the practice at this time. So do you think the Jews look favorably on Rome? No, not for the most part. Every now and then there were some who maintained their power by being buddy-buddy to Rome. uh, But other than that, most would have certainly looked negatively upon the Romans. This is your backdrop about the centurion. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and do that. And Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you that no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, that should raise some eyebrows, right? Like Jesus' audience, Matthew's audience, both predominantly Jewish people at this moment, right? And and to this Roman, to the centurion, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. Just a pretty profound statement. And there's got to be questions from the audience of like this is who you're going to heal? This is this is who you're going to actually seek through the restoration? A centurion? Are you kidding Jesus? In a country full of God's chosen people who have followed Abraham, who have been set apart, who are waiting for the Messiah to come, Jesus says to this pagan centurion, "Nowhere in, in have I seen such amazing faith." This is the faith you praise? And the Roman centurion sort of also knows, like, Jesus, I understand how power works, right? Like, I have power over my men. I can command them, and they're going to go do what I tell them to do. I, I know how power works. And yet he says, um, Jesus, I know you have power in some ways. But I think as a non-Jew, uh, he actually uses the word suitable here. Uh, the word worthy uh I would argue it's a terrible translation of the choice of the word there. Um, But he uses the word suitable. I'm not suitable to come into your home. And I think he would argue because I'm a Roman centurion. I think it was very clear that Jews had made clear that Romans should not be hanging out with them too often. I'm not not suitable to come under your house. But Jesus, I know how power works. And I believe you have power to do this. I think you do. And at this, Jesus just praises the man's faith. This man who represents so much of what Israel hates And he praises his faith. Now, remember Matthew. What do we say about his genealogy? What do we highlight? Yeah, the outsiders, Gentiles, all all sorts of different things. Like Gentiles from people groups that that most of the time Israelites were not so keen on. What kind of person was Matthew? A tax collector. Somebody who had sided with Rome. And he's telling the story. And he's making sure to highlight, all right, Jesus just taught this amazing ethos of what his kingdom is going to be about. You know what he did? He healed this leper. And guess who else he healed? Centurion's centurion servant. And I think he's drawing out the understanding that there's, there's salvation even for those who are enemies, even for those who are outside of the fold. Because Jesus will double down here. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while well, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, uh, to the centurion, Jesus says, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, this is such a loaded section. So how many people will come in that day? What does it say? Many, right? which should be peculiar because Jesus just said, the road is narrow and how many people come? Few. (laughs) To probably a predominantly Jewish crowd, Jesus is like, this is a really hard thing. And yet he turns and says, hey, from the east and west, which would have already implied a a, a Gentile crowd, whenever there's uh, directional things of north, south, east, west, Almost all the time, it's related to uh, Gentiles, those outside of Israel. Uh, The number four also does the same thing, but we'll get there later in Matthew. And and so, I think Jesus is saying here, many will come, many many outside of Judaism will come. There'll be many who come. And, um, And recline at the table that we have been the stewards of, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this kingdom of God. And there will be sons of the kingdom who will be thrown out into the darkness into a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I at least want to address this one here. Um, In Jesus' time, so we, as I said the other day, we will cover hell and some of those topics as we go. I'm I'm careful against reading our theology back into certain phrases that pop up into the New Testament. So in Jesus' time, there was a place outside the city walls Um, It was often where those who they couldn't quite figure out the guilt innocence of, they would tie them up on the outside of the city walls and they created a test to determine whether they were guilty or not. And they would leave them out in the darkness overnight. So with outside the light of the city, they would leave them out in darkness overnight. And there, maybe perhaps overnight, the animals would come and partake of of the day's garbage because that's where the garbage tended to be on the outskirts of the city. And so people would be tied up living in absolute fear all night long. And if they survived, um, if they died, then it was presumed, oh, they must have been guilty. And if they lived, then uh, they often came back actually quite crazed from a full night of living in complete darkness, wondering if they were gonna be eaten by some animals. Um, And so they would often grind their teeth and weeping, all sorts of stuff at night. And so this place on the outskirts of the city, particularly by the trash mound, became known as the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's a literal location, at least uh, here. They picked up on some Old Testament phrasing of the weeping and gnashing of teeth that was tied into persecution and used it for this. So, metaphor, probably, hyperbolic or not, uncertain. It's, it's hard to create a whole theology on, on hell from this one phrase, and so I want to be cautious to ever do that. Perhaps tied to the destruction of the whole religious leadership of Israel that he's speaking of, like, look, like you guys have the leadership right now, but that's about to be thrown out, because we're going to see Jesus warn about that later on in this book as well. So, cool? Keep moving? I know you probably want to ask a thousand questions about hell and stuff like that, but we will get there. Matthew will get us there. So, once again, Jesus is the one inviting the outsider in. Once again, there's no one outside the scope of the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew really wants our people to see. He really wants his audience to see. And those who are religious at the time, which would probably be us here as readers too, may be caught off guard as Jesus tells these stories, or as Matthew tells these stories of what Jesus did. That, That he looks to somebody that all of us would go, no way. Right? And Jesus goes, such great faith. It's a common joke I've heard of, when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised by two things. Those that we thought would be there who suddenly aren't and those who we thought wouldn't be there who are. And I think that's the the paradigm that I think Jesus is challenging. To the religious leadership being like, don't think you've got everything figured out and that you're safe. And don't think that this crowd is never gonna make it. Those lepers, the centurions, it should lead us back to have that good eye of judgment. That crino, that everyone's an image bearer. Everyone has a potential to be the son and daughter of the king. And there's also a beauty of the how here. I, I love that Jesus is drawing near the leper in the previous story, but yet in this story, he's like, all right, all I gotta do is say the word, which is great. And I think that invites us also. That's why we do things like global updates and tell the stories and stuff like that. Like we have a God who has the power to, to command our, or to direct our prayers into action around the globe, not to be there. We can pray for Kyle and Amy today and believe in faith because we know how power works. Just like the centurion, Jesus is able to do something about it. That we're not throwing them up in vain, but we have a God who has the power to command armies and to do so around this whole globe. And then lastly, Peter's mother-in-law, verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, uh, which uh, in one of those buildings, one of those pictures, it's this little building. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our disease. Um, So a few things, this is probably where we note that Peter might be one of the older disciples and he might be married at this point, um, that um, he has a wife that he has left behind at some point to follow Jesus uh, and we'll, we'll get indicators of Peter's age as we go. And Peter's mother-in-law, it gets healed. It's a simple story. It's not, it's not a lot of drama to it. She has a fever, Jesus a her, and then she doesn't have a fever anymore. Um, and she arose, and the Greek actually says he began serving them, not him. I, don't, I have no clue why the SV puts him, um, but he, she began serving the, the, the group that is there. Uh, and the context would imply her ability, her ability in that moment, not that she was suddenly worshiping and stuff like that, that she had this ability to get up out of bed and to go serve. The last line, though, gets me a bit. Um, now, once again, I think we sometimes need to tweak our understanding of how we view prophecy. And Matthew's been challenging us on that the whole book. Because we, this, this line comes from Isaiah 53. That we immediately, often when we hear the text from Isaiah 53, we immediately move to his crucifixion, right? It's by his wounds we are healed. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. And we immediately move to the cross, right? And, and I'm not taking away from that. I think so much of that is certainly connected to the cross. Yet here, quoting the same section from Isaiah 53, Matthew is connecting this to the fulfillment in his life. The things that Jesus was doing in healing people was also a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. So Jesus is going from healing lepers to healing servants to healing his mother-in-laws, casting out demons, healing the sick, and Jesus is fully God, and yet Jesus is fully man. And, and I, I think we also have to recognize that being fully man, he has physical limitations as well. Um, whether you love the chosen or not, there's a wonderful episode like that, that the main Jesus character is almost not in the whole episode. And it's because he's healing people the whole time, like off in this shit, while the storyline's following the disciples and other things. And at the end of the episode, he kind of comes out because he's spent a whole day healing and he is just worn out and exhausted and just collapses because he has spent himself for the other his whole time. He has taken their illnesses, borne their diseases, and sacrificed himself for the sake and the good of the other. And I think that's what Matthew is meaning by Jesus is fulfilling in this, the fact that he would sacrifice and take on and bear the infirmities of others in his life as much as he will do in his death, in his life as well, and fulfill Isaiah 53. Now, I wanna get to a final application. So I wanna draw a circle. This is actually, I heard heard a a pastor have this experience with Dallas Willard when he did this. If you were to put Jesus somewhere in the circle, around the circle, where would he be? <laughs> Without any other context than that. In the middle, yeah, center. Where else? Anybody else have different things? Maybe sometimes it's like you'd put a chair in the middle and put Jesus on the throne and us next to it. Yeah, right? I've done, through, I've done that exercise a few times. Filling. Would he fulfill the circle? Would he remove the circle? Now, whatever the circle is encompassing, I would also say, because I know I didn't give a lot of context, context, Jesus is certainly outside the circle. That he came for those who lived outside the circle. That Jesus calls us to go outside the circle as well. Whatever the circle is, Jesus is outside it. He breaks down our categories, our barriers, our definitions. He challenges us to see, to live, and to love beyond any sort of boundary piece. Jesus does not call his first followers to necessarily just start a church right away. He didn't call them to start following some religion, per se. He did not call his first followers to put their names on a roster so they can serve in the local gathering. He did not call his first followers to become a member of a club, but to love and to serve a Samaritan, tax collector, Roman oppressors, Prostitutes, foreigners, the poor, the women, the children, sick, the hungry, the prisoners, even lepers. The most ostracized collection of people in society, Jesus goes, hey, that's who I'm here for. Certainly he's here for all. But the insiders didn't need to hear that. (laughs) They needed to hear who he was really after. And that the circle is not the definition of his community. Sure, he would tell them to go send him more, to go back to family and friends, to be restored, told him to, to, to do all those sort of things, to obey the Lord, all of that, yes. But mainly, he came to say, you are restored, you are loved, you are welcomed, you are invited in. And Jesus still does that to, the, to this day. So yes, we have a leper, a centurion, a woman, all people who would have been marginalized in some ways. He's calling his people to live a new kingdom way and showcasing it in this very next stories. That Jesus went to those who no one would have expected and brought healing and restoration. And the byproduct of the healing and restoration of people, what starts happening at the very end, all these people start coming and going, I want to be healed and restored too. It's something we give in the invitation to others. I think sometimes we boil our invitation to Jesus down to can I present a good doctrinal stance on Jesus when our testimony might simply need to be, Jesus healed me. And sometimes it's less about getting our ducks in a row as we evangelize and more about saying, I I had this sin sickness to me, a sick soul, and Jesus restored it, he healed it, and see what happens from there. Because they certainly aren't going, "Here's, here's how Jesus justifies us through his death, now come get healed. They have no categories for that at this moment. But they have seen him heal others and restore others and are inviting others into this. And are we willing to live in the self-sacrificial ways of Jesus and fulfill what Jesus has called his church to do and to draw others in? Now, coming off the Sermon on the Mount, I certainly want to highlight that Jesus is the healer of our souls, the one who draws near, He's one when we were outside the circle, went outside the circle for us and brought us into himself. That's wonder. That's the gospel centerpiece, that we would turn from our old ways and put faith and dependence in who Jesus is. That is the work that Jesus accomplishes in and through us. But Jesus came outside the the circle to call us and now calls us to go do the same. But are we willing to imitate and participate in what Jesus is doing and showcasing his kingdom and what it's like? I I think we miss out on just how scandalous these stories are. It makes me think of the fact that Jesus just goes, even in his own just living, like he doesn't go out of his way to seek any of these people. But in his going, these are the people who God brings to his table. So where are we paying attention? And noticing those who are already in front of us and sharing our, we share our life and, and our Jesus with them. The neighbor who maybe doesn't drive and maybe is struggling to, to get by. It's a bit of a shut-in. The person who doesn't know, who you don't know, just sitting in the row behind you right now. The security person you walk by at the grocery store, the admin in the doctor's office, all sorts of different people who might just be the people that are living and feeling like if anybody even sees them. And you might be the one person who Jesus working through would be the God of the universe sees you. And God uses you as the conduit to bring that message to others. Because you've got to think the leper is sitting there going, I don't know if anybody cares about me. And yet Jesus did and was willing to. We encounter so many people throughout our days. And are we willing to see them and listen to the prompts of the spirit to move towards them as Jesus did? So let's take communion.